It's been an interesting past week and a half, to say the least. Earlier this week, I spoke to a good friend of John and Noreen's, someone who has been active in the search for Johnny Gosh since the very beginning. His name is Ron Sampson, who at one time was the president of the Help Find Johnny Gosh Foundation. And if that name sounds familiar, that's because back on episode 8, I played a news clip from KCCI in Des Moines which featured Ron. It was a story on the 35th anniversary of Johnny's disappearance. And when I first made contact with Ron, he turned out to be an incredible resource. I wanted to get his thoughts on the new information that we talked about in my most recent episodes. And as someone who has been so close to the case for all these years, I wanted to know his ideas on what happened the morning that Johnny disappeared. And I guess I should tell you right now, because we do talk about it during the interview, when Ron listened to my previous episodes, he shared them with Johnny's dad, John Sr., particularly episode 16 with Chris Burge. Two days later, I spoke to John over the phone, and you will get to hear that conversation in my next episode. So now I'd like you to hear from Ron Sampson, good friend of John and Noreen Gosh, who has been with the Johnny Gosh case since it was six months old. This is episode 20 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. about my because I would say like the first 12 episodes of my podcast are a lot of um, stuff that's kind of already been said before like a lot of history stuff but the only real new information that I came across was when I first heard from a guy who goes by the name of Yellow Bag. Yellow Bag yeah. yeah I'll tell you what starting at starting at 13 through 18 you have either got it nailed or you're close to having it nailed. I, you know, I, I hate to say that after all these years, but I, the, the theory I kind of have always agreed with is that it could be the easiest, most likely people involved here locally. Yeah, that's what I, yeah, that's what I've been kind of realizing too. I mean, I think, and I even said it in one of my episodes, it, like yeah. it, it's, oh, it's, yeah. Occam's, it's yeah. Occam's razor, you know, usually the most simple explanation is the one that yeah. ends up being true. Yeah. Um, it's not it's not nearly as sexy to think about or or intriguing to think about because you think of a worldwide uh, network of these guys and you know what kind of dark shadows they live in. <clears throat> this could very well have just been a guy who either worked as a uh, newspaper uh, carrier manager, a drop off guy to these guys to these kids, or somebody who works at the mall in one of the uh, pinball machine uh, mm-hmm. operations. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, but, you know, today, in today's society, unfortunately, you know, the Boy Scout leaders, the Little League coaches, um, mm-hmm. uh, all those kinds of people have uh, a pretty broad light put on them. And in those days, nobody thought anything about it. Everybody was so trusting. Uh, yeah, that's 
that's what I've noticed too. And I think that it's, I mean, unfortunately, I think I said this in one of my earlier episodes. I mean, like, you know, Johnny and Eugene Martin, it's sort of, it, it's become their lot in life. They've sort of become the examples of the oh, fact absolutely. that adult, no. adults are not perfect and uh, yeah. do bad yeah. things. No, everything, everything changed. And, you know, my kids were seven and two, and uh, we became helicopter parents, mm-hmm. you know. And, but we lived out in the country, so it was real easy to be that way because they couldn't go very far unless we took them there. And if we mm-hmm. took them there, we knew exactly what they were doing. It's, they didn't grow up like I did where I could pedal my bike all over town. Right. They couldn't go, they couldn't go anywhere unless we took them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, you know, as a newspaper owner back in those days, I can tell you that that was about the time that it was nearly impossible to get newspaper carriers replaced. If you if you lost a newspaper carrier for, you know, because they just got tired of the job, it, it was tough. You know, parents just were not going to have their kids up. It didn't matter if it was 6 in the morning or 3 o'clock in the afternoon after school. Mm-hmm. They were just not going to have their kids out in the neighborhoods, and and rightfully so, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's it, it's it's crazy because like I kind of grew up in that sort of generation because I mean I was born after this happened. Like right, I I right, was born in '84, right. so. Yep. Um, yep. That's the weird thing is that like I was born in '84 and I was, I think, my mother and uh, my family was very like conscious of like the concept of stranger danger and i never yeah i never got to go anywhere by myself i never got that like walking anywhere by myself out of the question like that never would have happened um yeah and and really and really to john and noreen's credit that is the word that they spread for all of the uh other things that happened okay uh they spread that a sermon of stranger danger wide and far um mm-hmm. you know walsh walsh did a pretty good job to get started but uh, nobody was as rabid as noreen and then john drove her everywhere we i mean one year i think they must have put on probably between 350 and 500 of those seminars always on their own dime and that's traveling all over iowa which, you know, is a pretty pretty small place, uh, but a lot of uh, gyms of 200 people, up to 2,000 people, churches, uh, clubs, uh, you name it, and they would go. And the only word of mouth we had was strictly putting up a few posters that we'd printed up. And uh, But I'll tell you what, people came, they bought candy bars from us, they bought the bumper stickers. That was our... <clears throat> That was our main uh, income, was selling the uh, materials, not selling the materials, but providing the materials for people and uh, make a donation. Um, Yeah, well, and you started to say some of the things that you got to do, and I I am recording this right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm kind of um, wondering if you could kind of explain to me and to everybody um, how... And when did you first get involved sure, in the sure, Johnny Dash sure. case? Well, of course, this happened on Labor Day weekend, and yeah. a beastly hot weekend. And I can remember it because uh, we were we were just spending family time because school was getting ready to start. And at that time, we had a uh, seven-year-old and a two-year-old, and uh, so we were kind of uh, hustling around. And, and uh, of course, this news came across, 
And here in central Iowa, there are three main news stations, and they all had it, and it was wall-to-wall, search, um, you name it. And at that time, the only thing it really did was uh, put caution into the air for us. We didn't ever get involved in the search. West Des Moines, as the crow flies, is about uh, 20 miles from where we lived. And uh, so we just kind of watched uh, the progress. We read the news stories. We watched the t- television um, networks uh, talk about it. And it got to be about um, January, and I got a call. I was the editor of a local paper that was 20 miles away called Ankeny, Iowa. It was the Ankeny Press Citizen. And I was the editor, wrote a column every week, and the column was kind of an Andy Rooney-type column. You know, here's what happened to me this week. Here's what I think about uh, President Reagan. Here's what, you know, yeah. it was just goofy stuff, yeah. okay? So I had a, I had a uh, reader who just said, you know, you really, I've gone to one of these Friday night meetings that the Goshes have for awareness and fundraising, and I think you ought to attend. And I said to the lady, I said, you know, I've got so many problems of my own. You know, I've got to sell advertising. I've got to cover sports. I, there's so many things I've got to do. I'll see if I can fit it in. Well, my wife kind of encouraged me to um, go go to a meeting, uh, and I did. And I decided I'd do a story on John and Irene because all the time that I was watching the news or reading the news, I always felt like they weren't getting a fair shake. I kept thinking, why why is the news kind of slanting things that there's something wrong with these parents wanting to search so rapidly for their son? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got two sons and, and there's nothing you wouldn't do. Right. Absolutely nothing. And so uh, I did a story on them and uh, attended their meeting, which was in their living room. And uh, it was one of those things where they gave uh, kind of an update. Here are uh, the leads that we've gotten this week, or here's the number of phone calls we've gotten this week, and their phone rang nonstop, even during the meetings. They'd have to take it off the hook. And, of course, this was before cell phones or anything like that, so everything was a landline. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I went, uh, I, I did the story on them, and, and really my first story, and I say story, I, I wrote a column called Optional Reading. Okay. And, and the joke behind that is because if anybody stopped me in the grocery line and says, you know, I really think you're an idiot writer. Uh, and I said, you know what? That's the name of the column. It's optional reading. You've got the option not to read it. So don't read it. <laughs> so anyway, um, it's kind of my perfect out always. But uh, I, I got some very good feedback after my first uh, column about them. Went back for a second and a third meeting. Uh, John and Noreen became very good friends of ours. Uh, we we would go out to eat with them and discuss things with them. We were kind of, we kind of became their confidants. Uh, mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of people that were comfortable uh, talking with them uh, all the time because you know you take a certain responsibility when you become parents or when you become friends of somebody who's had this kind of a tragedy. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, it's a wor- it's much worse to be the parents, but uh, being their friends, uh, you know, we, we wanted to shield them from some things and we wanted to encourage them in, in a lot of ways. Um, so anyway, uh, sooner or later, I, they uh, asked me if I would serve as president of Health Find Johnny Gosh, help coordinate the candy bar sales. We sold candy bars, I think, for a buck from World's Finest Chocolate in Chicago, Illinois. We sold bumper stickers. We printed brochures, 
And that's one of the things that I could really provide a lot of, and that's the printing materials, because uh, we owned our own press, mm-hmm. and uh, that was uh, one of the things that uh, the advantage of having me on board is that I could buy ink by the barrel and print a lot of stuff for them. Uh, but we started going to uh, various small towns, whether it was a church or a gymnasium or whatever, uh, whether it was a ladies club or a scout troop, they wanted to hear and see John and Noreen and um, I guess educate themselves and expose the community to the caution that people were learning to take. And, uh, and that was really the theme of John and Noreen's talk. It was not, they did not go into the investigation. They did not go into the dark underworld of uh, vanishing, uh, disappearing kids. Um, They would talk about uh, Mr. Walsh and and his loss. They would talk about their loss. And their theme was, please watch your children and encourage your legislator, who, you know, we had a very good governor at that time and still do. Uh, It was Terry Branstad who is now the ambassador to China, as a matter of fact. And um, he uh, signed some legislation getting rid of the 72-hour waiting period, which, you know, seems archaic uh, when when you think about it. How could anybody think about waiting 72 hours? Because a parent would say, you know what, I don't care if my son did run away. I don't care, you know, what the circumstances are. I want to search for him. If, even if he's in a neighbor's basement to begin right now, because I don't feel good about this. And John and Noreen hit some major obstacles because of that. And uh, But the legislation got changed. And I would have to say also that that was probably the beginning of the Amber Alert. You know, in its infancy, that was how the Amber Alert got started. It wasn't named it back then, anything. But it, at least it gave law enforcement the idea that, look, we if these parents feel bad about something, we have to get going on it. Yeah. You know, they, they usually have pretty good instincts, parents do. So um, we did a number of those uh, kinds of uh, awareness meetings. I think one year we did 350 of them. Uh, and John and Noreen would just jump in their car when John get, got done with work and Noreen, and they would drive to the place always on their own dime. Uh, If people contributed that night, that's fine. If they didn't, that's fine too. The message didn't change. We would always leave behind. We had bookmarks made up with uh, hints on how to keep track of your kids better. We had booklets made up. We had uh, bumper stickers. Uh, We had posters. Uh, Obviously, at that time, we still had posters of Johnny uh, as a missing child and uh, Mm -hmm. two pictures of... Uh, there were a sketch of what we thought that the uh, perpetrator might might have looked like. And that's something I want to ask about, because I think I said in one of my most previous episodes that I'm really starting to think that there was not one car involved. I really just logistically looking at it, when you kind of walk through it, um, it sort of seems to me there would have to be two cars, because one car to go all that way around Ashworth Road and right. come back the other way down on Marcourt. Um, yep. It just seems a little impractical, especially that right. early in the morning. And um, 
I was wondering what you thought if you had heard my episode with Chris Burge, episode I 16. I have heard, I've heard all of them. Okay. That, one was, that one was brilliant, and he has excellent recall. And, in fact, when you, when I, when I listened to that one, I mean, I was getting goosebumps, mm-hmm. and I called, I, I emailed John, because he's in Alaska right now traveling. Right. And I said, John, I know you don't have much internet up there, and I know times are, you know, Time is of the essence. I want you to hear this. <laughs> if yeah. you need to, if you need to, just call me. I'll play it on my computer, and I'm going to put the phone down by the speaker, and you're going to listen to this. Mm-hmm. Well, it just so happened that he had fallen and bruised his ribs, and he was going to stay in the ho- in the in the camper for a few days uh, while his wife went out and fished, and he was able to get internet. Okay. And he listened to that, and he said, "You know what? That kid has." And he knows the kid because, of course, one of his sons, one of his brothers was a friend of Johnny's. Right. The, the families knew each other, and John said, man, that brought back memories. It brought back the, the drop-off point at Ashworth, and 42nd had just changed. He said that is probably a very good recall on his trek from the house. I mean, it made more sense to John after listening to that podcast than anything that he could recall. Really? So, oh wow! Uh, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, it was, <laughs> and, and yeah. that's why he's that's why he's going to be anxious to talk to you. Oh, I'm, I, well, I I was texting him a little bit the Good. other day, and I'm I'm really excited. We have a tentative plans to talk on Wednesday. So great, um, and he is. I'll tell you what, just personally, he is one of the world's good guys. I mean, he, he always yeah. was, and, and this has made him so much more sensitive to other things and other people. And there wasn't a time after Johnny was taken and then the, we became their friends that he didn't ask me about my sons. Now, think how difficult that had to be. You know, yeah. uh, he, he had to be watching me raise my sons the way he was raising Johnny, and he was robbed from age 12 on. My mm-hmm. sons went on and did some wonderful things in sports, wonderful things in school. Uh, one of them played Major League Baseball. I mean, think of the torture that would be for somebody to watch somebody else. But he was always so gracious, yeah. so generous, always sending me a note saying, hey, I read this about your son. Tell him tell him hi from me, will you please? And just, you know, think how difficult that would be if you were the parent. Oh, yeah, uh, certainly. To watch, you have to watch other kids grow up around you and yeah. your own's not there. Yeah. Yep, yep. And, yeah. and Noreen, you know, Noreen is wonderful too. She's always asked about our my kids. Uh, so I, you know, I can't say enough good things about both of them. Uh, they've just, they've, they've been true friends for, you know, the last, uh, 36 years. Oh, and uh, well, I'm so glad to hear that because that's always the impression I got from the both of them. And, um, I think to me, um, I mean, I know it's been a long time. It's been like 36 years almost. And, um, And I know that they've been searching for answers. So the um, I know Noreen, her story has changed a little bit. Like at one point, like, you know, when Ted Gunderson got involved, like sure. she thought sure. she started thinking that, oh, was my husband involved with this? And I think that's like, I, I to me, that just feels like that's just a mother looking for answers. I think like people like Absolutely. Ted, yeah, I, I, yeah, Ted Gunderson is just, uh, you can't trust people like that. He's just, no, you, no. you know, and I think that's unfortunate that that happened, but I think yeah. in sort of the, the lexicon of the Johnny Gosh case, I think Johnny's dad 
kind of gets a bad rap because a lot of people um, think bad things about him, and I think that that's really, really tragic, and that's kind sure. of, um, sure. and, I kinda, and I get it, and it's not, it's, it's kind of, once that word gets put out there, that's a little bit unforgivable, too. That's, right. that's, a, oh, pretty, yeah, that's, a, that's a serious accusation, you know? And really, really, when it first happened, too, people said, oh, my gosh, you know, this Nareen Gosh lady, she's on TV, she's got this flowing mane of hair, and she's got very expressive eyes, and she's very eloquent. There must be something wrong with her. Yeah. And then, then they'd say, oh, and we've heard that she was married before, and we've heard, oh, we've heard all, you know what? She's had a tough life. Yeah. She had. A, she was married for a short time to a man. Had two children. A tornado. You know, yeah, he, he died. died yeah, yep. He dies of cancer. She has a tornado destroy her house, and she meets John. I mean, uh, how how many Bill more bad things can happen for poor Noreen? Honestly. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just uh, so. But that's the the general public, and it's think how much more rabid it is today in the world. You know, mm-hmm. as soon as somebody missteps or has a mistalk or something, uh, how ruthless they are to go after them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely. And I, I think that it's, you know, it's it's unfortunate. I think that you know people see that her look and you know she wears eyeliner and whatever, and you know people make assumption that it's like, yep. you know, yep. and I think yeah, and I think that you know, to me. She's always seen, I've never met her, I've never spoken to her, but I've always just gotten the impression that she just seems tough and oh, withstanding. Tough. And, and, and she's going to hold it together yeah. because of her son. She's yeah. not going to fall apart and become worthless to the uh, to the effort because she's going to find Johnny. I mean, that's just all there is to it. She's going to find out what happened to him, who did it, and where he is. You know, and that's been since day one, you know. And I've always wondered about the night that he allegedly visited her because everybody I've talked to seems to think that that's just not possible. Like, you know, that's just not how, like, that's that's not how people work. I mean, that's not how child predators work. I mean, like, if you look at any closed case, it usually, like, the the child's been dead within 24 hours. So to, to live into your late 20s is a, a little unrealistic so um i'm wondering like i mean she stands by that belief though right that, hey, well, that was him that, and, uh, and you're you'll probably be disappointed in me but you know what as close as i am to noreen and there probably isn't there aren't many people that aren't family members that are any closer i've never asked her that question and we've never discussed it okay. and i and i think she understands that i that i won't uh, even when the movie came out and people wouldn't and during the movie, during that segment, they would look at each other, and you could. But then the movie kept going, you know. So yeah. they didn't have time to talk about it. But we've never discussed it. Uh, we've just, and it's it's not that I'm afraid to. I just respect her space and her feelings. So okay, uh, that I guess that's the answer I'm going to stick with. Okay, and I and I get that, and um, sure, and. Has John ever spoken to you about what exactly happened that morning? Because um, there's a, f- a few conflicting reports. The, the newspaper article that I read a couple episodes ago said that he um, had finished Johnny's route, then went home and called the police. Um, yeah, um, and most yeah. other reports 
say that he found the wagon, went straight home, and called the police. So I, I don't know. Has he ever told you that'll, what exactly that, he did that morning? I'm sure he'll be more than happy to answer that question. I thought that you covered that very well in your one of your podcasts, but John will be very straight up with you on that. I mean, he is he has an excellent memory and and uh, and he's an excellent communicator. Uh, and I've never asked him that. You know, it's it's kind of uh, I, for me to be this heavily involved. You got to realize that almost everything, all of the dirty work, all of the investigation, all of the early stories were done long before I came on board. You know, this this yeah. entire thing was six months old when I got involved. So those kinds of things, I just kind of assumed, you know what, they're done. Uh, we're not going to rehash that. Uh, I, I really, my writings and stuff were about uh, stranger danger. It was about fundraising. It was about the effect that they're having on a new society of parents and kids. Uh, what it's like to be those parents. I really never went into here's step one, here's step two with it. I just figured, you know what, the daily paper did that. I'm a weekly paper. Mine was much more about relationship with John and Noreen and, and how they changed the world for parents and kids. And I'm wondering too, um, when this, when the timeline started to evolve, when Paul Benassi got involved, um, what do you right. think? What do you think about Paul Benassi? Well, because um, he's a yeah. little like I, I go back and forth. Like at first, yeah. I really believed everything that he said, but like really, when you analyze the whole timeline, it's like uh, yeah. kind of doesn't yeah. also make sense. Like I'd love to believe that he was involved and has a link to something. I also know because of some of the things that I've even sent to you about nutty things that people have sent to me over the years that some of these people become obsessed with the, with the case and they put themselves in the middle of it. And he may be one of those guys. Uh, I know that one of the stories, too, was that uh, John, uh, when he went to see Paul Benassi and Noreen couldn't go, they sent a lookalike. Mm -hmm. that, wasn't, that wasn't true. Uh, okay. and, in fact, John and I talked about it the other day. What exactly happened? So that's, a, that's one thing I would love for somebody to clarify for me. What exactly yeah, was yeah. that all about? John will, John will tell you he went there with a man. It was a guy. Okay. You know, they didn't attempt to fool Paul Benassi. They didn't try to make it see. It just didn't happen. And, and, and I'm anxious for John to straighten that out with you because he has no qualms and and talking about that. But you know, the, the thing that really fascinated me during the movie, and I'd never heard this story before, was about that uh, deserted shack in Colorado. Oh, yeah, yeah, with the cavity dung. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I couldn't, I couldn't hardly even breathe, and I was sitting there eating my popcorn during that, and I thought, holy smoke, if that's true, if it's even close to being true, um, man, uh, there's a link here. You know, we're close to getting this thing solved. But, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, John has his doubts about Paul Benassi because he, he tried to prod him a couple times on some characteristics or some uh, profile things about Johnny that, that would be obvious if you actually had ever seen Johnny. And, and Johnny was the size of a man. He was 5'8", and Benassi said, oh, he might be 5'2", or 5'3". Yeah. So... You know, some things just didn't add up, and so. But John, if John's anything, he is a healthy skeptic, and you know, he he wants he, he'll believe you, but you have to prove it first. 
So uh, I'll be very interest, interested to follow that podcast when you talk to John. In the early days, had you ever heard of the name Wilbur Millhouse? No, but boy, when I saw it on, when I heard it on your podcast, I was Googling that, as well as the, some of the other names you brought up. And uh, again, that is one of my strong beliefs is that the most common and most likely thing could be the easiest thing to figure out. And, uh, you know, having been a paper boy when I was eight years old until I was 14, and then having my sons be paper boys and then having a crew of paper boys deliver my paper, um, I know how much contact people have in those days. And uh, I, I know that the influence would be very easy to get. And uh, I'll tell you what, that's that's a bombshell to me, you know, and the, and the fact that the register never really uh, pursued that. When I heard the uh, results of the judge's case on that uh, with chain needles, mm-hmm. uh, that really disappointed me. Uh, I, I And I know chain needles. Uh, mm-hmm. He... he I've just, I've yeah, with Fred years. Sayer. Fred Sayer was another one too. Fred, I Holy mean, cow. Yeah. yeah, and um, uh, and that was another thing. I guess like uh, when I spoke to Chris Burge, um, he had regular contact with Fred when all the boys would always hang out at the mall. He was like, Fred just yeah. like worked at the piano store, and I right. mean, Chris even said it. He's like, oh, he gave us some money. We went and saw ET, and um, and I th- that was the last question I asked in my last episode was, um, well. Okay, so if this guy's name, Fred Sayer, is getting blasted all over the newspapers, um, why did Sam Soda never question him like he questioned other people? And also, on top of that, I mean, did Johnny ever see Fred Sayer? I mean, it would make sense if he did, because if Chris did, it would make sense. I, I I asked John that the other day when he called me and said he would be getting in contact with you. He said that Johnny was never a mall kid. He okay. was never allowed. He was never allowed to go over there, and it's far enough away from their house that at twelve, you would have had to have had a parent drop you off there. Um, you know, they were they're close to it, but they're not that close. And um, so he just said, you know, that that probably didn't happen. But he says, I'm not saying it didn't happen with other kids, and the influence might have filtered over to Johnny somehow. Okay. So. That's, uh, again, some of those links are so strong uh, that uh, I, I know that Noreen sent me an email today that said something about um, this particular person's M.O. Uh, was not to kill children, it was to molest them. And that's why, that's that, and that came from the police, she said. So when you have your conversation with Noreen, you might want to mention that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think I, I even told her I was going to forward that on to you. I just feel like the, it, it just seems all very um, interconnected to me. Like, uh, sort of, I'm wondering yeah. if, like, Fred Sayer and Wilbur Milhouse, if they sort of ran in the same circles. That's kind of what I'm starting to lean towards now, is that there was a whole sort of... Them and, and that Frank Sikora. Yeah, I mean, Frank holy, holy smoke. Yeah. You know what? And, and I think that that is probably... You're, you're the first person to ever build a, um, a family tree out of these scumbags. 
and then put a time and then put a timeline there and then try to link them together either for their uh, professional activities, their jobs, or their personal preferences, which was boys, piano store operator, or whether you're the Des Moines Register, um, some of those things could blow up in your face. Apparently, this um, this carrier uh, yellow bag was, uh, I, I mean, I guess he did it for a few years. I guess he, I think he stopped when he was like 16, but um, I, I guess a few times he got rides home from Wilbur Millhouse and would talk to him often, see him a lot, and said on more than one occasion, and in front of other people too, like in front of Yellowbag's mother even, like nothing would have happened to Johnny if he just kept his mouth shut. And it's like... Unbelievable. Yeah, and it's like, well, I mean, that I mean that doesn't really prove anything. I mean, he could just be some lowlife trying to take credit for it or something, but... Sure, sure. But it, well, yeah. okay, you know, you know, you know, one of your sentences, I'm going to chop it in half, says, Soda gave the authorities a two-hour videotape in which Sakura admits he fondled almost all the boys and masturbated a 14-year-old youth. Yes. Holy crap. Yes. you got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. That guy should never have seen the light of day again, whether, it, and I don't care what you hold him for, you hold him until this case is solved. you got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but I'm wondering too, like what do you what do you think of Sam Soda? I mean, some of the stuff that I'm hearing and reading about Sam Soda is that it yeah. just seems like he's a little um he he's a little on the dark side too. I mean, oh, he's definitely yeah. definitely on the dark side. Yeah. He, he knew too many things. He he you know the fact that I I heard your number nineteen today where he was talking with poor Mr. Martin. Yeah. about, look, I'm not working for Horrible. you. you like, that's anything. unacceptable, yeah. Holy cow. You know, there was a $250,000 reward at that time. You solve this case, and you don't care if you're making 15 bucks an hour on a retainer. You know, I'm sorry. Solve it and make the money. Yeah. Uh, and, and nobody talks like that to a parent. You know, and, and the, the Martins, bless their souls, um, they were just as broken up and just as grieving as John and Marine, they just did not have access to or the means to go out and make these presentations. You know, they were mm-hmm. just in the shadows looking for Eugene. Um, I mean, there's just, oh, you, yeah. you just... That was uh, exactly that's tonight, it. Yeah, that's tonight, exactly. I'll, I'll send you a picture tonight uh, mm-hmm. of, uh, of a, one of the few times we ever met with them. I got a local guy to paint uh, John, uh, Johnny and Eugene's picture on the side of a semi. Mm. And and I'll send that to you because I just found it the other day. Uh, oh, yes. In a, in a drawer. It's pretty cool. And, you know, they were wonderful people, uh, passed on. Mm. But, uh, you know, his brother is still, um, I think, everyone on the anniversary, uh, of course, very much wanting to put some finality to this, put some closure to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I saw a news report, I think it just came out like last year, it was Eugene's brother who was yeah. just saying, oh, I just wish we could find out something. Even though the two cases were never officially connected, I was like, they've oh. got to be connected, though. Yeah. It's too similar. It's too similar yeah. for it yeah. to not be connected. Yeah, and, and, but it's awfully convenient for the major news source in the town to say it's not. What do you think is the more realistic route to go? Do you think it's like, you know, he was sold into 
a pedophile ring like the movie suggests and you no. know all all of that or I'm no. I, I, th- that was what I originally thought at first when I first no. heard it but you know I'm sort of now leaning towards I think it was very local and somebody who was just who I think he I yeah. think he got into the car willingly with somebody he knew I think he knew the person in the car and I'm afraid he didn't live long after that, probably. Well, that, that that brings me, you just reminded me of something Yellowbag had said to me, that um, back at that time, Wilbur Milhouse lived in an area called the Bottoms. which yes, I guess Bottoms. Yeah, which is like the, um, which I guess is like not a lot of houses or anything, just a lot of like woods and swamps and just things yep. like that. Um, and Yellowbag, I mean, and this was pure speculation on his part. He was like, well, Millhouse did say all of that, and the bottoms um, could be a good place to bury a body. So Yeah, yeah, because nobody, first of all, nobody wants to go there willingly. Yeah. And, I mean, it's not a place where they're going to develop or build houses. It's just kind of, uh, you know, there's a uh, one of those plants where they recycle uh, dead animals and stuff. Oh, and, yeah, you know, okay. Yeah. Uh, and so there's just all kinds of not great things over there. Mm-hmm. And the people who live over there, you know, they, they you know, some of them live accordingly. It's uh, it's a tough area, and uh, probably a lot of secrets back there. I see. Yeah. Um, trying to think of those as something I wanted to bring up to you, but your podcasts have just uh, how you keep that flow going. I don't know how many times you stop and start. But you have the energy behind that. It never gets boring. And it's not just that I'm attached to the story, but you really have opened up some eyes and said some things that uh, needed to be said. But I think it took a new set of eyes to see them. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I mean, that's sort of what I felt for a while because um, I first learned about Johnny a little less than two years ago. Um, I've probably heard his name growing up. I just maybe didn't really know anything about the case but um I, I i don't know what it was but for some reason when i first really started to research the case it, it just it, it hit me in a weird way that it just um i don't know because i saw his school pictures and it just i, I don't know i i felt a great deal of empathy and it just reminded me of when i was 12 and i was like like oh i feel like that I, I feel like that version of myself again, and um, and it and it was very it was actually I have to say a very easy case to research because there is so much information oh. readily available online. Yeah, um, yeah, and I can't figure out how so many people get so interested in. I mean, I'm very grateful they do. I don't have that kind of energy, I guess. But at 65, you, you start losing your energy a little bit. But anyway. And, uh, and, you know, one time we, we got a call uh, from somebody who was down. There, there used to be a, uh, an adult bookstore right across the street from Vets Auditorium, which is where all the basketball tournaments are and stuff, right in the middle of downtown. And somebody said, you know what, we got a picture of Johnny here. He's in this magazine. And it was actually a Friday night when we were having one of our meetings. And I said, you know what, I've got nothing to do right now. Why don't we just run down there? And John said, well, I'm meeting you in the car. So we went down there and they had a magazine laid out on one of their tables and you know, and there was about three or four guys standing there watching us. And John was flipping through the pages and it was a child pornography book. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, 
room. But yeah. that's a sample of the kind of stuff that we used to do, just on, on a whim. You know, somebody yeah. calls, we were gone. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it seems to me there was just like a lot of guys that were into that kind of thing. And, and, oh, yeah. And, and also, too, it's like that, that organization, NAMBLA, they're so, yeah. like, gross and disgusting. Oh, and, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and now, of course, they even have it on South Park. That's how common that is oh yeah and like Howard you know I I used to listen to Howard Stern and like even Howard Stern would like they would make jokes about it and they would like go and like read their website and stuff like it's a big joke and it's like it's like guys this is a real thing though this is a real deal Mm -hmm. um yeah and you know when I when we had we had a round table once because the register was feeling so much heat from John and Noreen they wouldn't be cooperative with their uh, interviews anymore, kind of, it shut them down. And they said, well, let's, you know, let's have a roundtable discussion. You bring three or four people, bring your attorney, bring, you know, your uh, president and the, the two of you. And so we sat there with all of these college-educated uh, people from the Des Moines Register. And Bill Gannon, uh, Yale, I think, or Harvard-educated uh, uh, publisher of the paper, says, what is this word you keep bringing up and using all the time? What is it? Pedophile? What, what is that? And I put up my hand and I said, okay, that's almost that's going to be the end of this meeting because until you know that, why do we keep using it? Because it's a pretty common term. It's something that is pervasive in the underworld and it is a, you know, it's, it's something that you should know the meaning of. And it, it, I, I just couldn't even believe it that those people admitted not knowing what that word was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, that's the thing. It's like it's not even a part of anybody's lexicon. Thirty-five years ago, they didn't know that. Yeah, thirty-five years ago, they didn't even know the meaning of that word. And we were using it at all of uh, John and Noreen's awareness that you have to watch out for pedophiles. You have to watch out for these people who believe that it's uh, sex before eight or it's too late. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and it shocked people. But the register refused to acknowledge that that was a, a problem. So I was very heartened after I spoke with Ron. It felt like an affirmation that we're headed in the right direction with this podcast. It also feels like we're turning a corner, like we're following an accurate timeline and beginning to put the misinformation to bed. As you heard Ron and I talk about early on, it's Occam's razor. Usually the most simple explanation is the one that ends up being true. When I first started this podcast, I didn't know which timeline to follow. There were so many. So I approached the story as exactly what I am, an outsider, not an insider. And I continued to navigate the case further with each episode. That's why I would constantly say I do not claim any theory that I put out there, whether it's by me or anyone else, to be fact. It's also my goal that if I do put anything out there as fact when it turns out to be wrong, that I always retract it as soon as possible. And in that same regard, I cannot claim it to be fact that Johnny got into the car willingly, that the person driving was someone he knew, or if it was someone connected to the Des Moines Register. But let me remind you of what Mary Bell, the match panel coordinator for the Doe Network, said back in episode two. There are endless possibilities, but we're not looking for possibilities. We're looking for probabilities. When you look at it that way, it is a more likely scenario that it was someone Johnny knew, or at the very least, felt comfortable with. So that is where I leave you today. 
Until then, you can reach out to me by email at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. Faded Out is also on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. And we do have a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. I'd like to also direct you to Fade It Out on Patreon. By giving just a small monthly contribution, you can help us do so much more with this podcast. Travel to the locations where events happened. Talk to people on the ground. It's a tiered system where you can get rewards back. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And I strongly encourage you to tune in to next week's episode. Hello? Hi, is this John? Yes, it is. Hi, this is this is Sarah Dimio. That whole talk will be available for you next week. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode 20. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. <laughs>